the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. All right, let's get it going right here, right now. This is New Generation Declassified. And you're listening to an all-new New Generation Declassified here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week I'm joined by uh, a dignitary from my uh, little circle here, or at least I like to be joined by somebody every week. But uh, I had to go grab this guy. Um, I call myself Chad, but I'd really be the Fugazi Chad as I welcome in really the only real Chad that I know. And it is my uh, my great good friend, uh, longtime close personal friend, if that, uh, the one and only Chad Flat of Music City Toys down there in Watertown, Tennessee. Chad, how's things in your neck of the woods? Oh, man, things are good. Things are good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I thought about uh, how much the uh, Southern wrestlers had an influence on the new generation. And I thought about only one guy who I'd want to talk about uh, that topic with because uh, every time we get to talk about whether it's business stuff that always circles back into our wrestling uh, fan days or uh, just a casual wrestling conversation you and I have ever had, uh, I love to hear about that growing up in that area. And we brought you on before to kind of talk about that, but we're going to elaborate more uh, now um, because there was a lot of Southern influence in this 93 to 97-ish era. And uh, I'm going to guess that you saw a lot of it, but on both sides of the coin in the South and in the WWF. Um, so before we get started, please give us a quick update on what's going on in the music city toys world. Oh man. Busy as always. You know, we just finished uh, an event this past weekend, the uh, music city sports card collectibles and autograph show, which is no relation to music city toys, but uh, the name <laughs> is similar, but uh, we just had demolition for that event and uh, things went great. We've got Cowboy Bob Orton coming in for an appearance in the store October 1st. And we've got a, a virtual signing coming up with three former uh, TNA knockouts, uh, Shelly Martinez, Angelina Love, and SoCal Val on October 29th. And then, of course, we'll be uh, for the ninth consecutive year at WrestleCade in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Thanksgiving weekend. So, uh, that and, and a few other irons in the fire before the year is out. You know, there's all there's always something cooking. You know how it is. You always got something going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, your Music City uh, sports uh, endeavor you had over the, this past weekend was a loaded show, and you were rocking with Demolition, and I saw the pictures, and they looked like everything came out great. Um, you know, I worked with Bill Eady rather recently, and uh, watching him put the makeup on is something, but – you got to have some sort of flashbacks when you look at both of them in the makeup, right? You got to like really take a look and uh, make sure you're, there's no twin towers or uh, <laughs> fabulous Rougeau brothers uh, looking over your shoulder because that's freaking demolition sitting in front of you. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it's pretty surreal to think, you know, and I'm sure you you've experienced it too, to think growing up a fan and watching these guys, you know, we were laughing and talking about it this past weekend when they were number one and two in the Royal rumble and they, battled each other until I believe Andre the Giant hit the ring. But yes. we, uh, we laughed about that. But, yeah, it's pretty surreal to think like these guys you you grew up watching. Like if you told, you know, 10-year-old me that one day I would be, you know, texting members of Demolition and then <laughs> and setting up these appearances and, and and hanging out with these guys and getting to know them. And, and it's, it's just pretty crazy yeah, for sure. But to watch them put on the makeup, it's kind of funny. He's like, you know, they're 
they got the, the ladies compact mirror and they're, they're putting the makeup on you know, like, the, like the girls getting ready to go out to the club, you know, or something like it's pretty funny. But yeah, it's, it, it's pretty surreal when you see stuff like that. It, it's really weird. And I don't know why, but when, uh, when I was doing all the interviews with uh, John on the, uh, the original formation of the two man power trip show, um, we interviewed so many great people, you know, the Dusties and the, you know, Jesse the Body and George the Animal Steel, Bushwhacker Luke, all these great legends. But it was weird when we had Bill Eady on for the first time and you got to talk to him, something struck in me in a way it hadn't on any interview prior where I was like, I feel like I made it in this little thing now that I'm talking to Axe and like he's <laughs> just talking to us like regular dude. Like, I don't know what it was. It was something about Bill Eady. And maybe because he's also just like, you know, the one of the more like um, dignified guys that you could possibly work with. I don't know. It's something about him that's very special. But uh, trust me, every time I look down and see uh, franchise on the old caller ID, I got to yeah. pinch myself. It's <laughs> <'Cause, laughs> funny. Because you can't give that guy a live mic. Just imagine what he talks like on the phone. So, oh, yeah, uh, I can only know. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Moving forward. So the Southern Influence, uh, you had the benefit of not only being just a full-fledged wrestling fan, but you also are, you know, a big fan and, and historian of sorts, you know, with that Southern wrestling scene. So tell me what it's like to watch both the USWA product and the WWF product, while it's basically showcasing the same guys. We'll get into who they were, but kind of tell us what it was like to dip your, uh, you know, proverbial foot into the water of both sides of the, uh, of the wrestling coin. Well, it, it's, you know, for all the comic book fans out there, it's almost like an alternate universe because you would see the guys in USWA or, or a little bit later, even in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or somewhere in the South and, and they were main event guys. They were superstars. They were, the you know, battling for the championships. They were top of the card. And then you would see them in WWE and, you know, maybe not so much. They were, they were uh, you know, enhancement guys or lower mid card or, or opening match guys or whatever. So it was really kind of mind blowing as a fan that was, I wouldn't even say smart to the business at that time, but to see the two different worlds collide, it was like, uh, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was like a fever dream of sorts. Yeah, I mean, and look, obviously, this is nothing new to, you know, to companies where guys go from one place to the next. But the weird part is the simultaneous nature of yeah. some of the appearances. And that where I find it fascinating. And again, we'll talk about the players as we go along. But just for you to be able to watch it, were you able to separate easily when you were watching as a, you know, let's we'll just go back to young Chad fan who maybe was rooting for a little bit of the bad guys because he liked something about them, but the good guys were cool too. So was it kind of like schizophrenia on how you rooted versus who you rooted for? It was uh, very confusing in a way because, you, you know, <laughs> you saw a guy, maybe he was a heel in Memphis and in the WWF, he was a baby face or vice versa, or the presentations were just so different. It was very, very odd and confusing when you saw that, uh, that crossover and, and the differences there. It was, it was uh, it, it may have been the first uh, thing for me that really sort of uh, clued me into the fact that perhaps things were a work. Yeah, yeah, maybe because they're nice on one side and then they're right. vilified and hated on the other. Now, we're going to stick to basically the USWA and Smoky Mountain because during the time of 93, 
to 90 early 97 that's the promotions i'm basically sticking with when i say the south now we could say georgia is wcw country but that's not what i mean i mean memphis style wrestling right. i almost change it to the memphis influence but i want to include smoky mountain so i don't want i just i'm going to say the southern influence because you know I, to me yes georgia is the south but i don't know something about where you are maybe it's being from Jersey that you are in the South. <laughs> so <laughs> I give you that distinction. Uh, December. Let me see the date here. It is December 7th, 1992. Does that date mean anything to you? December 7th, 1992. Hmm. No, I'm not. It's not ringing a bell. I'm sure it's significant as to what we're talking about though. Oh, it's quite significant. Now, we've had discussions on where where does the new generation start? I say it starts the day that Monday Night Raw just completely launched. That's January 93. Some people go back to November or October when Bret Hart beats Ric Flair. But this is a pretty significant day in WWF history, but it will also have new generation ramifications as Jerry Lawler debuts on primetime wrestling in the... I think this is fourth from the last episode of primetime wrestling on the USA network prior to Monday night raw. What are your first thoughts as a fan seeing Jerry Lawler appear on WWF TV? Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a, a newsletter reader or uh, any, had any sort of uh, connection to the inside workings of what was going on. So it came as a complete shock to me. I was watching uh, primetime wrestling uh, live as I always did, you know, in, in the studio setting there with the guys, and then they would kick it to the taped matches. But I remember seeing, you know, Lawler sitting there, and I'm like, that's, I, I remember, I still remember saying, that's Jerry Lawler. What's, what's he doing? You know, what's he doing there? That's Jerry the King Lawler. Like, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. So it was, uh, that, yeah, that was kind of the first of many dominoes to fall with the Memphis and, and the new generation or the South and the new generation connection, I guess. But but one of the most significant being the biggest star from the South and, and the main guy from Memphis. And now he's uh, he's working with the WWF, you know. So in, in December 92, you might have a better idea of what he was doing at that point. Is Jerry Lawler still a mega baby face in Memphis during December 92? If memory serves me correctly, initially when he went to the WWF, and of course he was a heel there, he was still a babyface in Memphis. Now he ended up turning there as well. Right. But, Back, uh, yeah, initially, really initially it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was the the difference there for sure. And so that's where you know, again, like my my previous question was, you know, how do you how do you take that on as a fan, and how do you separate because you know you are portrayed one way in Memphis, you're portrayed another way in uh, the WWF, but you're going to think that even though you're not making as much money as you probably were in Memphis, we'd see the the King did pretty well for himself in the WWF. I'm sure that the money was there, but the King doesn't really start wrestling until January. He's in the Royal Rumble, and then he slowly kind of works his way around doing little things. Nothing until the Bret Hart to like, you know, Bret Hart for you to majorly take it off. But I would say, I'm going to run down a bunch of names here, but his impact is probably the biggest because in that era, that was the first, okay, oh my God, anything can happen. You want to talk about Scott Hall jumping to WCW as, as a benchmark moment? I think Jerry Lawler jumping to the WWF could be just as high on that list of most uh, impactful jumps from one promotion to the next. Yeah, for sure. And that was kind of the 
the the kicking off point of the relationship between the WWF and Memphis. And I think we've talked about it before when, you know, Vince McMahon even showed up in Memphis. And then you started seeing WWF guys on, on some of the bigger Memphis shows as they were kind of doing a talent trade and, and, and co-promoting and working together. And Memphis was sort of being used as a developmental territory before that thing, you know, that became a thing. And uh, so that, that Lawler, uh, Lawler going there, that was the kind of the first, uh, first of, uh, of many things to come there. Yeah. And, you know, I've said a million times that I, that's like my bucket list for this show is to do the McMemphis uh, saga, which I honestly feel like I need to record all the shows in one day, just because it is a lot. I mean, it's yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks worth of TV months, if that, you know, of, of television, but probably some of the more hard hitting and compelling television because, and I have said this before, and this is another thing you might have a different outlook on. I'm not a fan of TV studio wrestling. Really? I just don't like it. I don't like the presentation. Maybe it's because the WWF was our territory growing up. And that's all we had was, you know, the, I mean, look, Allentown was the closest we're going to get to like a studio, but I don't know. I mean, you guys all grew up on that down there in that, uh, uh, Tennessee area. Uh, what do you like about the studio wrestling that I might not see? Well, I like the intimate setting. All the fans were there uh, because they loved their heroes and they hated the villains and they wanted to, you know, cheer for their guys and, and see the bad guys get theirs in the end, you know, and everything. So the crowd was always hot. They were always into it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, NWA is doing that concept now, but I don't know that studio wrestling in today's world translates as well as it did in that era, because you had a lot of territories that had, you know, even smaller promotions uh, that had local TV that, that did studio style shoots. So, I, I mean, it's, uh, it, I guess, I guess yeah, it's one of those things you had to be there. Like you had, to, <laughs> you just had to kind of grow up in that atmosphere from, you know, the, the TBS 605 and Crockett and that studio there uh, to, to Memphis, to, uh, to some others. It was just, uh, there's just something special about it because it was so intimate and all the fans were so into the product. It's, it's a far cry from like the universal studio setup where just anybody roams in and sits down. They have no idea what they're even watching or, you know, the, the fact that fans are too smart for their own good now. And, and in that environment, it doesn't work as well. Although I think the NWA has done a good job with it, probably about as well as you could do in the modern world, but uh, there's just something special about it. I don't know. It's one of those things that kind of from a bygone era that you just couldn't, can't really recapture, you know? Yeah. I just never caught on with me. Same thing with the NWA, WCW. Never liked the studio shows. I just, um, I, and I don't mean studio shows as in like the recap shows. I mean the physical present fans in a television studio watching the wrestling. I don't know. I just don't, uh, I don't like it. I feel like this, the, the noise is canned a little bit, you know, with the, the ring. The ring's not as impactful. I don't know. I just, it's, it's not something I'm into. So uh, that's an interesting uh, thing that, you know, I know Southern fans growing up, you guys love that. Just doesn't, doesn't work for me, brother. <laughs> are, you, are you stroking the Fu Manchu as you say that? <laughs> I was actually, it's funny you say that. Uh, I'm going to point out here that, um, and of course I use the history of WWE.com as does every other sensible podcast uh, that could possibly be in existence. Um, they have right on Jerry Lawler hasn't really done anything in terms of WWF matches, even into February, but they have on the calendar here, February 1st, 1993, Jerry Lawler, the USWA uh, champion um, 
defeats Mr. Perfect via reverse decision. Uh, Henning really originally won the match in the title when Lawler was disqualified for attempting to, to use the pile driver, but referee Frank Morrell came out and told original referee Paul Neighbors that Perfect had done the same earlier when he was knocked out. Perfect played the heel for the match. So here's an instance of a WWF superstar who is a babyface on TV, just sent Ric Flair out of the WWF, yeah. is in Memphis, rekindling his feud with Jerry Lawler and and uh, uh, having a, a world title uh, fake out there uh, in, the, uh, in the USWA sanctioned card in front of 2,000 screaming fans. Yeah, the old dusty finish, it sounds like. That's it, but this card is filled with guys that would then make their way to the WWF. So I'm not really going to go into too much date detail here, but I'm going to rattle off some names, and we're going to uh, kind of talk about um, where they treated well. Did they have a good run, or was it kind of like a, uh, a fart in church, as they say? Um, the next most impactful Guy I have coming from the South to uh, the North to the WWF is a guy, another guy I never thought I would see in the WWF in 1993. That is one James E. Cornette. Now, did we know about what the frig Smoky Mountain Wrestling was in the working agreement? Hell no, we did not. <laughs> but what we knew was is that a guy that we had seen on TV in the NWA and WCW for years uh, being their Bobby Heenan essentially is now in the WWF. I loved every second of Cornette hitting the WWF scene almost more than I liked him in the NWA and WCW. Yeah, by that stage of his career, he had been almost everywhere that, that you could go and, yeah. and have success. So, and, and uh, you know, he was putting together Smoky Mountain. It was, it was, it had come to fruition by that point. And so, again, another talent trade agreement, another working agreement where WWF would send guys to him to work some of his bigger shows. He was involved in, in the booking at the WWF and, and managing on screen as well. So uh, very interesting. I didn't see that one coming either. Well, I, I still remember that episode of Raw where he came out and him and Bobby Heenan embraced in the middle of the ring. And and uh, I was just, again, dumbfounded. I, there, that's Jim Cornette. You know, he's on WWF television. Like, uh, you know, the, these things then as a fan. And, it, and looking back now, it's kind of a charming thing to think about because it's not really possible today to be surprised like we were then when guys would show up out of the blue like that. Yeah. I mean, that's almost the beauty of it. Unless you had access to a 900 number or, you know, like you said, the dirt sheets, um, then there were literally sheets cause they were sheets of paper. <laughs> right. uh, you know, they, they, you wouldn't have known. Um, and Cornette got the rub from Bobby Heenan right away. And yeah. you knew who he was. I mean, they pretend like you don't know who he is and they, Oh, he's this newcomer, but Everybody knew who Cornette was, and I, I just couldn't believe he was standing there in that ring. But also, I, I couldn't believe who wasn't there at that point in the WWF because I didn't know as an 11-year-old that they were phasing out more of those tenured names and bringing in fresh blood because Cornette was rather young still at that point in 93. But um, I, I think that if you were to kind of rank them, which I'm not, but I just am doing them in a little bit of an important order to start. Um Cornette's involved in how many countless main event angles between 93 and when he's essentially taken out of managing in, in the tail end of 96. Oh yeah. He was, he was the, uh, the pre, you know, predominant manager for all the top heels during that time from, you know, Vader to Yokozuna and Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. And like the, the entire heel side of the roster, you know, revolved around his guys at the top working against whoever the, 
the main event baby faces were at the time for the most part. Right. And when we first saw him, we see the heavenly bodies come up from Smoky Mountain. Huge because for me, you know, I never really saw him wrestle, but I always read his names in the magazines. But this was the first time I got to see Tom Pritchard in a, in a wrestling ring live was watching him on the WWF with the heavenly bodies. Cause I missed them when they appeared in WCW, like what, six months earlier, right? They yeah. were a cup of it was, coffee. It was a very, very brief shot or two. I don't think it was very much at all. Cause I think they uh, maybe got on the outs with Bill Watts or whatever happened there. And then they were out, but yeah, it was a very short, uh, short stint for sure. Yeah. And they, uh, they came and they, they had their little smoky mountain feud going on with the rock and roll express who, for, you know, kind of all uh, points leading to, if they were there four years earlier, they're probably the top tag team in the right. WWF. But now they're yeah. a, you know, little little more senior in their age and not getting the same push. But nonetheless, pretty cool to see the Rock and Roll Express on the Survivor Series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I believe, were they, were they not part of WrestleMania 14 as well? Uh, they were, but mega heat with me because uh, they gave them the Rockers theme, and I hated that. <laughs> well, Vince wasn't going to pay the licensing for the, uh, <laughs> the the music that they normally used. I guess I don't know, but yeah, it's uh, it's again surreal. By that stage of their career, they they had been everywhere, done everything. They were known as you know many say the greatest babyface tag team of all time, and the one thing they had not done was conquer the big bad WWF. So. They came in for a, for a brief run there, and as you said, weren't necessarily pushed and treated as a top team. They were kind of paired with the other Southern guys because, you know, that's kind of the, the label that was stuck on a lot of those guys that came up there. But, uh, again, it was just kind of surreal and cool to see the Rock and Roll Express in a WWF ring. Yeah, very cool. And again, maybe a few years uh, past when they would have had a better, a bigger impact. Imagine them in that WWF 88 with all those tag teams, Rockers, Bulldogs, Hearts, Demolition. Could have been some special stuff. Oh, man, that would have been awesome. You know, they had a history with the Brain Busters anyway. So there was there was a it's lot a of options there for sure. Yeah, yeah, there, there was a lot of options there. That would have been incredible. I'm going to rattle off a couple of names for you, okay? These are just guys that didn't really have huge placement in the WWF, but still nonetheless, the point is, is that so many guys were poached from that area that it, it's incredible that you think that they have, there's a bias against Southern wrestling because of people like Kevin Dunn and maybe Vince sees Southern fans as, you know, uh, no, this is not any knock at use. Please do not say this, <laughs> you know, the whole, you know, like the toothless, uh, you know, hillbillies. That's been the perception we've been told for years about Vince and Kevin Dunn. Right. So yeah. you got guy Dirty White Boy, Tracy Smothers. So we got T.L. Hopper, Freddie Joe Floyd, uh, beautiful. What was he? Beautiful Bob Holly or Hollywood Bob. Uh, uh, what was he? Hollywood Bob Holly. Yeah. Something. Smoky Smoky Mountain, Mountain, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Turns into yeah. Thurman Sparky plug. Um, mm -hmm. You have uh, D'Lo Brown, you know, who was was an enhancement talent as A.C. Connor, but in Smoky Mountain got the chance to work. He's in the WWF. The Headbangers eventually make their way to the WWF. Um, here's a guy that, even though he kind of falls out of my timeline, I got to get your uh, your take on how he was used in the WWF. Brian Christopher was a huge, huge presence in the USWA, obviously because of his dad, Jerry Lawler. What did you think about how Brian Christopher was brought into the WWF? Well, initially he came in as part of the light heavyweight tournament, I believe, when they were – trying to sort of go with a, uh, 
smaller weight class to kind of mirror what was happening with the cruiserweights and WCW at the time. But he uh, he was a top star in Memphis, the you know, kind of a successor to his dad in many ways uh, and, and had become a huge name there. And so he was brought in basically um, sort of just sort of put in that box in that category of a light heavyweight. And that's what he did for a while until, uh, you know, a guy who was his opponent on many nights when he first came in, Scott Taylor, and uh, they became uh, too much and then too cool as the tag team and, and had some success there as a, as a, well, they won the titles, you know, as a tag team. Yeah. So that, that was kind of his, the, the mark that he made there in the WWF. But in, initially uh, I don't think he was utilized nearly to his, full potential, but you got to see, you know, how he was very solid in the ring, very capable, uh, a good worker. And then you got to see his personality come through when, when too cool took off a little bit later on. Now kind of contrast that to how he was portrayed in the USWA. You know, he was in a top spot. He was always involved in the main angles. Um, do you find that to be maybe a little bit above where he should have been because of who he was, or do you think it was justified based on the, uh, you know, the, the, the makeup of the territory. Well, you know, that was common in the territory days. If the owner slash promoter slash booker or someone who had a lot of influence in that territory had a son, uh, their son was going to get pushed <laughs> whether they deserved it or not. Uh, but at least Brian Christopher, you know, he could, he could carry his weight in the ring and, and, and was a, was a phenomenal talent. So I don't think that given that time period and the type of talent and the depth of talent that was available in the USWA, I don't think it was far-fetched at all that he, he definitely was one of the top performers there and deserved to be uh, in one of those top spots. Uh, so I, I don't think that he was, uh, was overexposed or overutilized in the, in the USWA at all. I think he was probably right where he needed to be there. He was a, he was a big fish in a small pond that finally found his way to the WWF. And it took him a little while once he got there to kind of find his, his role before he had some success. Yeah, that's very well put. That's uh, that's I would completely agree with you 100%. <laughs> I wrote this guy down on my list just for shits and giggles, but it's technically true, but it wasn't during this era. Technically, the Macho Man's a Southern wrestler, too, because he came from ICW. So that technically counts, right? That's Kentucky. That that kind of falls in the uh, same. Yeah, the, the old outlaw promotion of his father is there, <laughs> ICW and Lexington, and then uh, from there to Memphis and then to the WWF. But, yeah, I guess technically you could throw him in there, although he's not really – he became such a megastar. I don't think he's really labeled as a Southern guy, but yeah, no, his, no, no. His roots are definitely uh, firmly, firmly in the South, though. That's for sure. I just did it more to chuckle at myself yeah. uh, more than anything else. Um, how about? Uh, and this is the one where I really want to kind of broaden the conversation because I think, even though I really did like this guy during this era, and I think that he really had a big impact. I feel like lately there's been a little bit of revisionist history as to how much he really meant to this era. And that's double J Jeff Jarrett, you know, multiple time intercontinental champion. Now he's a WWE hall of famer shockingly back in the WWE fold and then out of the WWE fold and then back in the WWE fold. Jarrett was great. He was different when he came in, obviously in the USWA, another super duper megastar. But I feel like we look back on it now with a little bit of like kind of rose-colored glasses. It was an okay run, but he didn't really do anything when he was the Intercontinental Champ. You know, there weren't really any definitive matches because everything was a DQ or a uh, or a countout or something. You know what I mean? There, I don't think that his Intercontinental title years are as impactful as they make it. But 
his USWA years are pretty goddamn impactful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and another guy, humongous baby face in Memphis, quintessential baby face, the top baby face, and then goes to the WWF and is a, a country music singer heel. <laughs> so, you know, again, another, another total three. It's, it's interesting to see how Vince McMahon would look at a talent and what he saw when he looked at the talent versus what they had already done. And, and in many cases had a lot of success with, but, you know, Jeff, I feel like, and I was wondering where he was going to rank on your list. I was waiting to get to Jeff because I thought he was going to be <laughs> number two behind Lawler, but you hit me with a curveball there. But uh, yeah, he, I mean, he had some phenomenal matches there, especially with Shawn Michaels and some of those guys, but I liken his run at, during that era to the honky tonk man in the eighties uh, as the intercontinental champion. He was the guy who, uh, you know, didn't necessarily have any five-star matches, if that's important to you. But the the fact was he got heat, and, and the type of heat he had was the type of heat where everybody in that crowd thought, man, I could beat that guy. You know, I could take him. I could take him if things, if we, if it needed to go that way. And that, that was the whole heat behind the character. And and he was a beatable, a beatable heel that somehow managed to always come out on top and hold on to the gold. And I feel Double J uh, during that run was exactly the same thing in a lot of ways. That's why he saw a lot of DQs. That's why he saw a lot of that type of finish so he could hold on to the title and build more heat. But he was a multi-time Intercontinental Champion later on in, in his next run as he would go back and forth from WWE to, to WCW at the time, you know, became a tag champion with Owen Hart and, and a world champion in WCW later on even. But, uh, you know, just another guy, phenomenally talented, and uh, part of that uh, that era that, uh, you know, was is upper mid-card guy, very valuable asset, could work with anybody. And uh, I just think he had a very unique type of run there that I, I would say was very similar to the honky-tonk man. That, well, it's, yeah, it's very similar. Um, you know, as much as I like to think that everything that happened in the 80s was picture perfect and there was no uh, kind of bump in the road or, but you're exactly right. You know, it's kind of the same booking now that you say it. I'm, I'm kind of rethinking what I said. But I don't know. I just feel like now that he was back in the fold, the WWE kind of put that like super mega, you know, legend Hall of Fame spotlight on him that I, I just never personally saw. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought he was a great mid card heel and I loved his matches, but I just didn't see him as that upper echelon um, personality that they're kind of making him out to be almost more. Again, he was the executive the last few years, so I, I see why they did it. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for the, you know, Hunter Hearst Helmsley uh, Blue Blood being the most revolutionary, you know, bad guy of uh, the mid-90s. I'm waiting for that documentary to come out. Um, but, yeah, if you were going to say what are the top three, it's got to be Lawler, Jarrett, and Cornette. Um, but it just said the influence of that era. All these guys virtually were in top spots. Jarrett in, was in a, in a high-level spot because he was IC champ. Lawler and Brett were married together for a good part of three years. And Cornette, like we said, was involved with the Yokozuna stuff. He was with, uh, you know, Vader, the Bulldog, and all these main matches. And where did they come from? They came from the Memphis, you know, Louisville area where, again, we were told these are the Hillbilly Hicks and whatever. And these guys had some of the biggest impact, I think, of the era. And you got to tip your cap to Memphis and the, and the Southern influence but here's one other guy I want to mention before we get to the wrap-up. Um, if, if, if the Memphis territory, uh, before it was USWA and, and whatever else was uh, launched and closed in that time in between, 
when Vince McMahon was going to go to jail, there was one guy that was selected to run the company if that was going to happen. And that's Jerry Jarrett. And you can't say there's not a more Southern influence on wrestling than, than, than that last name, Jarrett. And Jerry Jarrett being that, that creative guy. Um, I don't really think we were privy to it at the time. But looking back, uh, let's give Jerry Jarrett the WWF for a year. What do you think he could have done with it? That's a very, very interesting question. I've thought about this many times. And, and depending on who you ask, that was the game plan. Some people say it was. Bruce Pritchard will deny it. Some say it wasn't the case. But that's uh, I've heard that from more than one person, that Jerry was the, going to be the man handling the day-to-day if uh, if Vince had to go away for a while. So, uh, you know, there's no denying as far as territory promoters go. If you look at just the dollars and cents business acts, uh, aspect of it, ticket sales, all those things, building stars, building feuds, being able to draw money, using real life issues, building heat, all those things. Jerry Jarrett ranks at or near the very top of all the territory promoters in the history of the territories as far yeah. as uh, you know success goes. So the guy clearly had a formula that worked in this area, even though it was regionalized. Could he, could he have tweaked that? Could he have applied that to a larger scale to appeal to a broader uh, audience? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes those things don't work out. You know, sometimes you have the greatest offensive coordinator in the world that's a rising star and they get that head coaching job and they look like they've never seen the field before, you know. So I don't know. I don't know if it would have worked or not. But, I mean, he's just too smart uh, when it comes to the business and and uh, and being able to to create uh, storylines, create uh, issues that I said you know draw money, that create interest and 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 get get people excited and get people compelled to come out and buy a ticket because that's what it was about in those days. Uh, so I mean I I wouldn't bet against him. I think if he was in that role, you'd you would have seen uh, likely seen a very different product that slowly would have of you know kind of morphed over time. But then again. Vince McMahon, even though he might not be there in person day to day, he still would no doubt have had the final say on anything that creatively was going to be done. So I think Jerry was kind of in place more as an experienced guy that knew how to handle talent, that knew how to handle all the backstage issues that arise, that knew how to put TV shows together and book, you know, the episodic television uh, that that would uh, create long-term storylines. I think he was more, going to be utilized in that aspect is rather than, well, this is your company now, Jerry, you go do what you want to, you know, I don't think that would have ever happened. So it is very interesting. I don't think that um, it would have been Memphis on a bigger scale by any means, but I think he could have brought some of the things uh, that he had done and had a lot of success with here in this region to, to the worldwide stage for sure. Well, you know, (laughs) I just had to do it. You know, I just, just, just listened to my first, full Pritchard show podcast this past week. Is that right? Yeah. The the early ones before Bruce went back to the WWE are really good, but once he went back, there's no need to listen. I listened to the, the episode 100 about brother love. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long one. Had a yeah. lot of time in the car this week. Yeah. Hand on a stack of Bibles. I remember, you know, when Conrad was getting going, I remember when this show took off. First full show I ever listened to was this past week because I have YouTube Premium, and this is not an ad (laughs) for YouTube Premium, but 
guess what I don't get? I don't get ads. So I can just skip around and listen to the content. And- oh, man, I need that in the worst way. Then <laughs> It's the only way to go. But, uh, yeah, no, he hates Jerry Jarrett's guts. And uh, yeah. it's very clear that he would not think that Jerry Jarrett was the guy. But that's what we've been told for, you know, 25 years. Right. Um, I think exactly what you said. You're, you hit it right on the head again. I think that's kind of where it would have been. And you were right on the money. Um, before we get to your, uh, your wrap-up and your plugs, um, give me a guy who went from the WWF to the USWA that every time you saw him, you got a kick out of because it didn't, he, they kind of seemed out of place. You know, you're used to seeing them in the WWF with the lights and all the glitz and the glamour, but when they're in the Memphis studio, it looks a little off. Well, there were several because as we mentioned some earlier, one that um, I always found interesting was, and he's a, he's a good friend of mine and someone that I've, uh, had for signings on several occasions, came down to Memphis, feuded with Jerry Lawler, won the USWA Unified World Title, the Native American Tatanka. Oh, okay, interesting. I like that. Yeah, that was that one. Always uh, kind of surprised me because, again, he'd been a huge babyface in the WWF up until the morning yeah. of the Million Dollar Corporation with uh, you know when Lex sold out. So never, never uh, but, saw yeah. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, so he, he ends up in Memphis for a short run there and feuded with Lawler. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, it seemed kind of odd to me. It's, but, but, you know, that was the pipeline. Guys would go back and forth and uh, they were sending guys to Memphis to help them draw houses. And Memphis was sending them the up and comers that they had cultivated to, uh, to, you know, for the WWF to take and make into bigger stars. And there were, you know, there's a lot of guys, many that we didn't mention. You know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a couple tag teams that, Go ahead, made, do it. That made the jump. One being uh, the Harlem Knights from Memphis that went yep. on to the WWF to become men on a mission. And if there's ever an act that personifies the new generation, <laughs> it's men on a mission. But uh, they uh, they went to the WWF, had success there. Mabel had a good little run as a single, one king of the ring, and uh, got pushed up the card. But they were very uh, – Mabel was very uh, – uh, Nelson Frazier is his name. He was very young in Memphis. People don't realize – how young he was. He was in his early to mid twenties when they became men on a mission. So uh, that was, that was one that came to mind. And then another one who were uh, one of, if not uh, well, a couple, actually, there was a couple tag teams, one that kind of was used in an enhancement role uh, in the WWF. uh, That being the, uh, the uh, play on words, the team of uh, uh, well done. (laughs) You remember that, uh, that show. Oh, yes. Uh, Rex King and Steve Dahl, they were huge, huge stars here in this area. Uh, And uh, the the Tennessee Rockers, as they were called, and and, uh, Reno Riggins teamed with one of them as the the Tennessee Balls, V-O-L-Z, of course, at one time. And uh, they were huge, huge stars here and went on to the WWF for a run as kind of an enhancement tag team. And then the other tag team uh, that I thought of, they kind of came in, I guess it was more that weird time period between the new generation and the attitude eras, things were kind of starting to change, but they were the tag team in the USWA years in the early nineties in Memphis. And that of course is Wolfie D and JC ice uh, PG 13, who of course became the hot men for the nation of domination and would wrap them to the ring. Uh, But they were humongous stars in Memphis, Uh, huge money drawing tag team. They're probably the last big act that ever came out of the USWA that was created and cultivated there that went on uh, to draw big money there and then went on to do anything else. So uh, those, those three teams just came to mind as guys who, especially well done, they were more known 
uh, in this area as big stars, and they really didn't get to showcase what they could do in the WWF as they were used in an enhancement role. But uh, but those three teams came to mind again as as uh, kind of you know two different worlds and two totally different uh, different characters for each of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I, that, I don't know why I glanced completely over PG-13 for, for whatever reason. I think I was so, like, fixated on Barry and Jeff Jarrett that I uh, <laughs> I lost my mind there. I forgot about PG-13. But well done. I mean, really, the only thing that they were was fodder for the Bushwhackers, yes. you know? And that's they basically got beat up by the Bushwhackers, who were bona fide enhancement talent at, uh, at that point. Um, I had Mabel on my list of the going backwards because even though I know he started in Memphis and did make his way to the WWF when he went back to Memphis after the WWF and was still King Mabel, he was turned babyface, and it, it, I just, I would watch the, the, the clips that you would eventually see. I'd read it in the, in the, whatever it was, uh, the wrestler, pro wrestling illustrated. And you say, Oh, Mabel defeats blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why is he's a bit, you know, he's a good guy again. Like where, where did that, come from when you watch the turn and stuff it just doesn't make any sense because he's still kind of like ghetto king mabel but <laughs> he's now a baby face and sir mo joins the nation i believe at that point uh, that was in memphis and uh you know kind of uh it was a weird mix oh one other guy too before i give you my other one that i i, I always laugh at when i see him in uh memphis um we gotta give a little tip of the old cap to one Dwayne johnson <laughs> oh, whatever happened to that guy? I wonder what, what, what he's doing these days. Um, Memphis being classically portrayed in the television show Young Rock this past year uh, as uh, Dewey passes through uh, the USWA on his way to the WWF. Do you remember Flex Cavana on Memphis TV? Very, very uh, vaguely. I was not a regular weekly watcher of Memphis by that point. I would catch it from time to time. And I think I saw him a couple times, had no idea who he was, didn't know that he was third generation star and going to end up being, you know, obviously what he became. Nobody foresaw that. But uh, yeah, I very vaguely remember Flex Command. I remember the Loser Leaves Town match. Uh, I do remember that when when uh, he was defeated and then showed up at the Survivor Series as Rocky Maivia. So <laughs> I do remember that. But yeah, it's uh, you know him, uh, Kurt Angle, and Mark Henry. Yeah, were three yep. three of the guys that 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 was when Memphis was sort of the you know being utilized as as a developmental territory before that you know was the term that was utilized for for that. But those three guys both kind of. Uh, were sent there to hone their skills and learn the basics and and learn what it was all about. And all three went on to, you know, Hall of Fame careers. So uh, there's there's something to be said about uh, Memphis as a training ground and a place to cut your teeth. It was quite the the pipeline. You know, any anybody who was anybody in the world of wrestling came through there in the 70s and 80s. And then even into the late 80s and early 90s, as we've covered during this show, so many guys got their start there and then went on to bigger and better things. So obviously they're, they were doing something right at, at one time down there. Uh, Ahmed Johnson also coming yeah. from the uh, USWA territory, but in a much, much minor role. I mean, he really hadn't cut his teeth even. What was, what was his name? Like Knights, like some, wasn't it some spooky name of some sort? Yeah. I can't remember. Right I can't off remember what it was off the top of my head. Cause it just came to me as I'm uh, sitting here. Uh, but to me, the one that I laugh at when he went backwards, again, even though I know he's from the Memphis area and came through the uh, the system, uh, 
I always kind of laughed, and even through the Power Pro days, how Coco Beware was still hanging around on the uh, USWA TV. I don't know why it always tickled me. <laughs> well, Coco to death, but it was just kind of funny. Coco just skipped an entire generation. He went from the 80s uh, golden era to uh, just showing back up in Memphis again. What happened to him all those other years? Where did he go? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a top spot either, you know? I think no. he, was, he, he was heel at one point. And, uh, yeah, I remember him even in the Power Pro days, you know, like, because uh, I, I heard stories from guys uh, who were on the Power Pro roster about Coco and Coco's antics. So yep. it's, uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things. But he's, if anybody, in the golden era, you know, now he's back in the studio. It had to be humbling in a way, but also kind of can make you bitter. And if you spend any time around Coco, mm, <laughs> bitter, bitter could be his middle name. For That's true. That, that is true. <laughs> I've, uh, I have experienced that as well. Yes, I understand. But, uh, you know, it's funny. You're talking about guys coming back. And when fans of a local promotion or a regional promotion, like it was at that time, see their guy that they see come in and, and come up through the ranks and then they move on to the big time, to the big show of the WWF, and they conquer that land. And even, even if they don't have great success, the fact that they just made it to the WWF television and are regularly featured there, you know, when they come back to Memphis, if they do uh, for any length of time, it's like, you know, that's our guy. That's, you know, th there's like a sense of pride amongst the fans of, and, and anybody who's from a small town anywhere in the world can identify with this. You know, you want to see your local you know, your local people from your community make it. And that's, that's like an example of a guy who made it and then he came back. So, you know, that's our guy. So they kind of rally behind him. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic really when you look at it uh, for, for the back and forth between the, the, uh, the, the minor leagues and the major leagues there, I guess you could say. That means you add $5 for his picture uh, costs at the, uh, the gimmick table. <laughs> that's right. That's right. A little extra, a little extra cheese on the Whopper there. Exactly. All right, Chad, uh, as we get to say goodbye here, uh, give us another plug for Music City Toys, uh, all the great stuff you have uh, going on. I am in the VIP uh, club, so I'm waiting to see who your VIP uh, guest is. I'm yep. totally not going to ask you who it is after we get <laughs> off this, but I'm waiting just like the rest of the VIPs to find out. But, uh, yeah, give us all the information about Music City Toys and where we can find everything. All right. Well, you can uh, follow us on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok at Music City Toys. Our website, musiccitytoys.biz. There you can find store hours and information on all of our upcoming autograph signings, both in-store and convention appearances. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. That's, uh, that's a one-stop shop for all your information, musiccitytoys.biz. Because toys are our business. <laughs> I thought you were going to say toys are us for some reason. I don't know why. I was like <laughs> waiting for it. I was like, he's going to say toys are us. And he said toys are our business. But it makes sense. Dot biz. Yeah. Uh, that's the way to be. All right. If you want to follow me, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter, at IB Exclusives on Instagram. My website is IBExclusives.com. There you can find the latest information uh, for some of my autograph signings that are coming up for the IB Exclusives world. If you don't mind going to belowthecollar.com slash IB exclusives, you can get the official Chadster t-shirt as well as the IB exclusives logo shirt. I might know somebody who wants that Chadster uh, t-shirt, huh? Anybody? Anybody on the line? Yeah, that sounds like a winner right there. <laughs> uh, and of course, the classic Hulkamania style. Uh, wouldn't expect anything different. Oh, yeah. What, what else would it, would it be? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And uh, anything and everything going on in this podcasting world, uh, head on over to my Twitter. Check out what we've got going on. We're working on building the Queen of Extremes YouTube channel. So if you like a, uh, a little dose of ECW history and some of the topics we talk about on the Eyes Up Here podcast, get on over to YouTube, subscribe, and you uh, kind of never know what we're going to find. I keep finding gems in our archive. We've got three years worth of shows now, Chad, and I keep finding these gems of these quotes that you know, the queen of extreme has uttered that she might not remember, but uh, we got some, we got some dynamite content headed the, uh, the old YouTube route. Nice. I, I can guarantee you she doesn't remember what she did yesterday, much less anything yeah. she said three years ago. So yeah, that's, that's good. Exactly. So, uh, all right, well, we'll get out of here for today. Appreciate the time. Uh, go watch some uh, Southern wrestlers invade the WWF. But in the meantime, this is the Chadster and I will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.